Good morning. Today we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians, starting at chapter 8, verse 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The second section will be 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 through 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all, sufficient, all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He is distributed freely, He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this wonderful word of yours. 
It teaches us so much about you. It allows us to know you and your son. It paves the way for us to become your sons and daughters in Christ. And we pray that you would strengthen us today as we learn from your word once again and that we would apply it in our lives. We thank you for the freedom in our country that allows us to worship and learn like this. There are many places around the world where this is outlawed, and we thank you that it's allowed for the time now. We pray that that would continue for many years to come. We pray that our leaders would be guided by you in in their decisions, that the country would continue down this road and even improve. There are many places it can improve. We pray that that would happen, Lord. And as Mr. Carnett comes, that we, we pray that we would be encouraged with what he has to say and that you would speak through him. I pray this in your name and in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. The Baptist preacher, Dr. John Lavender, gives us a helpful word as it pertains to the doctrine of giving. Listen, quote, Nothing offers so practical a test of our understanding of what God is doing in his world than does our attitude toward money and possessions. Nothing so tests our claim to be Christians. Nothing so clearly defines the differences between those who say they follow Christ and those who do not. The non-Christian's attitude toward money is well known. He wants to know, how much do I own? Christ wants to know, how do you use what you own? The world asks, what do you give? And Christ asks, how do you give? The world thinks of the amount. Christ thinks of the motive. People ask, how much do you give? And Christ asks, how much do you keep? To the unconverted, money is a means of self-gratification. To a Christian, it's a means of grace. To one, it is an opportunity for comfort. To the latter, it is an opportunity for for commitment. Close quote. We see in scripture, throughout scripture, that money is spoken of as amoral, meaning it's not good or bad in itself. One can have lots of money and not love it. One can have very little money and love it like crazy. Our view and use of Money is simply an external view of the inward attitude or the internal attitude of our heart. We noted two weeks ago in Mark chapter 12 that God evaluates our use of money differently than we do. In Mark chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 12, we learn that God doesn't demand just some of us. He demands all of us, every bit of us, nothing less than 100% of our lives. And yet the question remains, what does 100% commitment look like? What does it mean for the pocketbook? What does it mean for the finances? What does it mean for our giving? How do those two things, 100% commitment and our finances, relate? The Bible teaches that our pocketbook is a good test of faith. The Bible teaches that our pocketbook is a good test of our understanding of eternal investments. 
Indeed, the biblical argument this morning, I believe, is simply this. Cheerful, generous giving, cheerful, generous giving is motivated by the gospel, empowered by grace, and results in God's blessing upon us and glory to him. Let me repeat that. Cheerful, generous giving is motivated by the gospel, empowered by grace, and results in God's blessing upon us and glory to him. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to James, the book of James. It's on page 1011 in your pew Bible, if you're using that. Let's look at James chapter 1. This will be our first point for our study this morning, namely, the heart understanding. What is the heart understanding of a cheerful, generous, gospel-motivated giver? James chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom... Notice, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Malachi 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. A biblical doctrine of giving must first begin with a deeper understanding of the biblical doctrine of God. We see the glory of God in this passage and in these passages that God does not change and that he, as our father, delights in us, his children. And we thank God this morning that those two are together. Consider this morning the fact that if God never changes and does not delight in his children, he could never delight in his children. And yet... We see the truth that God does not change and he does delight in his children. We've just sung about that this morning and that he will hold us fast for eternity. And yet what does this never changing God do? Simply, he gives. God gives. We serve a giving God. He has given us life physically and he has given us life eternally. He's given us Christ, and in Christ we find the gifts of hope. We find the gifts of love and mercy and grace. A new family, a new future, a new home. All through the gift of grace and faith in Christ. Our God gives because our God owns it all. In Psalm 50, verse 9, we see, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Note, for the world and its fullness are mine. All of the universe is God's. All of the universe of God's. And as it concerns our time this morning, even the pennies in your pocket are His. It's not what's in your wallet, capital one. It's God's wallet. We are simply to be stewards of His heavenly resources He puts at our disposal. One day, the 19th century preacher John Wesley 
was away from his home. And someone came running up to him with horrendous news. Your house is burned down. Your house is burned down. John Wesley, in turning calmly, took in the news and replied, No, it hasn't. I don't own a house. The one I have been living in belongs to the Lord. And if it is burned down, that is one less responsibility for me to worry about. All the world is God's. Consider this morning what a paralyzing fear would course through our veins if King Kim Jong-un, the director of North Korea, the dictator of North Korea, could make the claim that the world in its fullness is mine. Or if President Trump could make such a claim that the world in its fullness is mine. And yet they cannot. Because our good and gracious, perfect Father has already made this claim. And he does not and will not relinquish his sovereign rule and reign to mere men of dust. The Bible teaches us this morning that giving is not primarily a financial issue. It's more than that. It's a spiritual issue. It's a heart issue. It's a litmus test of our surrender to our Heavenly Father. Whether or not it's holy, meaning W-H-O-L-L-Y. It's complete. And whether or not we understand His divine ownership of all things. The great hymn writer, Francis Ridley Havergal, the 19th century, a poet and hymn writer, says this in one of her best-known hymns entitled, Take My Life and Let It Be. The first stanza of verse 1, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. All my life, meaning, is yours, God. But notice the first stanza of verse 4. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite, M-I-T-E, not a small amount, would I withhold. Cheerful, generous giving begins with a heart understanding of God's ownership of all things. We see, therefore, that, that our Father gives to us, and therefore when we give, we're not, we're not simply making a transaction between bank accounts, but rather even more so, we're imitating His very character. He, our giving God, when we give, we are imitating that character. Point number one, the heart understanding of giving is that God owns it all. We've seen that in James 1. Point number two, the manner of giving. Or you might like, where should you give? Who should you give to? Turn in your Bibles to the left, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's on page 992 of your pew Bible. Before looking at the manner of giving... We must understand that one way, not the only way, but one way, and it seems to be oftentimes a, a primary way, that God supplies our needs to care for our families is through the gift of finances, through the gift of money. And it is right, the Bible tells us, to take that which God gives us, finances, and to use it to help and evaluate the needs and care for the needs of our families. What do we need to feed our family this week? What do we need to buy to clothe our family this week? What do we need to set aside to keep the lights on and the water running? How much gas do we need to run errands and enjoy his 
created order. We're not to give so much that we cannot provide for our family. In fact, we told in 1 Timothy 5, look at verse 8, that if we give more to the point that we cannot provide for our family, we're worse than an unbeliever. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What's the immediate question then? How much do we need? How much do we need? The needs list, the wants list, those things can get scrambled quickly in our society. Nothing is wrong with wanting things. Nothing is wrong with buying those things that you want from time to time. And yet, if all we're doing is buying the things we want and we are not giving, what is our pocketbook, what does our spending say about our heart? Once our needs are met, where should we look to give? And you might just, in your notes this morning, jot down four biblical categories that Scripture teaches for the manner of giving. Four biblical categories for the teach, that Scripture teaches for the manner of giving. After meeting our needs, where should we look to give? Category number one. Gospel workers hear. Gospel workers hear. You'll look with me at 1 Timothy 5. You're still there. Verse 17 and 18. Paul instructing young Timothy here about specific matters of organization and logistics within the early church. And this is what he says. Notice, let the elders that rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Well, who are the elders Simply, they are the shepherds of the local flock of God. What is this double honor? Well, the first honor is respect and submission by the members of the church. The church, you all, are to identify biblically those men among our assembly who exhibit the biblical character, care, and competency in imitation of Jesus Christ. And we put those men forward as leaders within the church. According to Hebrews 13 and other places, those men are then to be respected. Those men are to be obeyed and submitted to because these men and myself this morning have to give an account to God for the care of your souls all the way to heaven. The second honor seems to indicate not only respect, but also provision. That is, financial backing to do this work of shepherding full-time, specifically preaching and teaching. Galatians 6, verse 6. One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. 1 Corinthians nine fourteen. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Alistair Begg is helpful here. Quote, you don't pay people to preach... You pay people so that they are free to preach for free. Close quote. We are all, every one of us, as believers in Jesus Christ, are called to proclaim the wonderful free gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, there are those that God calls to do that work full time within the church. So our giving to gospel workers here goes to support pastors in the church and to help pastors do their work. 
So if, if a pastor is to be primarily focused on preaching and teaching, funds are also needed to free up time for them to do that and a place for them to maybe study and do that. And so we pay interns and we pay secretaries and churches pay the electrical bills so that there might be a place for gospel workers here to study and do their work and for gospel people to gather We provide books and we pay for conference fees to train pastors and others that will help advance the gospel and plant other churches. And and so when, when you all as members of FCF gather to approve and even revise the budget, what we're doing is we're identifying the best ways for gospel workers here, as one means of that budget, to advance the gospel forward. Category one, gospel workers here. Category two, gospel workers there. First here, then there. So as an extension of supporting gospel workers here, we send gospel workers there and we support them along the way. If we had time, we could look at Paul addressing supporting gospel workers there in Philippians 4. Christ does the same thing in Matthew 10 and in Luke 10. And who are these gospel workers? They're missionaries. For FCF, they're Ed Underwood and Evan Took and Mark and Sharon Welch. Gospel workers that we have sent there. You'll notice that these first two categories of people that we give to come from the church. They come from the church. The Bible assumes by emphasis that a Christian's first priority of giving will be toward the church. You see in Scripture that the doctrine of giving and the doctrine of the church hold hands very closely. And thus, our membership affirmation says this, We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. You've seen at least two, if not in a minute, three categories. Spread of the gospel through all nations, gospel workers there. Expenses of the ministry, regular support of the ministry, gospel workers here. And we'll see a third and fourth category here in a minute. So church membership is in many ways a community of believers that have committed to and agreed with the primary biblical doctrines and the gospel, and together, as a committed group, we have the biblical desire to see gospel workers trained and sent out to advance the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in giving to the church first, you're acknowledging your commitment and your belief in the church and secondarily, you're, you're understanding that the church has the biblical responsibility not primarily parachurch organizations, to train, equip, and send gospel workers from here to there. To be clear, we need to understand that we do not see tithing as a required mandate in the New Testament. Tithing is not a required mandate in the New Testament. It is under the Old Covenant. However, I think there's a word of warning needed here. In our haste to throw out the Old Covenant, I sometimes fear that the collateral damage is the New Testament instruction on giving being thrown out with tithing as well. Tithing, as mandated and described in the Old Testament, is out. But giving is not out. The percentage of 10% or biblically, really, 23 to 30% is out. 
But that's because God now asks for 100%. All of us. And so let's not throw out giving along with tithing. To do so is to neglect the command of God and the control of God upon our finances. Well, let's continue in our, our understanding of these categories. Turn in your Bible left again to the passage of Scripture that Jet Burns read for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, page 967. And let's begin by looking at verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8. The context of 2 Corinthians 8 is that Paul is commending this small poor Macedonian church to the larger, richer Corinthian church for the collection of an offering for the poor church in Jerusalem. Notice first, verse 5, the heart of the Macedonian church. He says, they gave themselves first to the Lord, that is to Christ, and then by the will of God to us. This small church, young church, gave themselves in totality, in completeness, to Christ. They were completely submitted to His will and way in their lives. And that complete surrender had had been given so much that it overflowed, it spilled over into a love offering to this impoverished, poor church in Jerusalem. Let me ask you this morning. Do you know Christ in saving faith? Do you know Christ in saving faith? Have you, have you committed yourself to Him? Have you recognized your sin? Maybe, maybe even this morning during the prayer of confession. Or as I've been preaching. You recognize that you have been greedy with your money. That the Holy Spirit has helped, helped you to see that your sin of greed isn't some mistake you made this week. But it's actually rebellion against a holy God who has ownership of all your money? Do you see that your sin is in rebellion against that God? Do you recognize this morning by the power, I trust only by the power of the Holy Spirit, your need for forgiveness from that sin that requires that God punish that sin with death? So what are you going to do with that sin of greed? Or whatever may have been brought to mind. What are you going to do with that sin today? Anything less and anything more than believing and receiving by faith the full payment of Jesus Christ's payment for your sin by dying on the cross is a fool's thought. It's a fool's errand. It is hopeless. Anything more or less than Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who died on the cross to pay your deserved death penalty. And it is His perfect death, in His perfect death, that He offers you the transaction of a lifetime. Speaking financially, He offers you the transaction of a lifetime. He will, by grace, through faith, out of love for you, exchange His perfect record as the Son of God for your imperfect record as the Son of Adam. And the transaction cannot be bought, cannot be purchased this morning. It's a free gift. It's received by faith. It is acknowledging that only Christ could pay the penalty for your sin. And that after paying your penalty of death, he rose from the grave three days later, proving and securing your hope that you will be with him forever in heaven. 
So giving to the church is not going to make you rich in Christ. That's not what this is about. Giving to the church will not buy you eternal happiness or joy. Giving to the the poor person along the side of the road will not gain you heaven. Nor will putting money in the box gain you heaven. Nor will it gain you hell. But it very much may slick the rails to hell if you're giving with the thought that you can gain heaven. Because the riches of Christ are not to be bought. They're offered freely. They're given freely by God. And what more does a person need? If you know Christ, will you respond to that free gift by receiving Christ by faith this morning? Will you turn from what is wrong and begin to let him have your, his will and way with your life? There is nothing more that you need in this life than Christ. You want to know more? I'm at the back after the service. Talk to someone to your right and left. Call me. There's information on the pew card. I'd love to talk to you. But don't go away without giving thought. Have you? Has that transaction been made for you? That's a transaction that God makes. We receive it. Category one, gospel workers here. Category two, gospel workers there. Two, may, two more ways that we can give still through the church. More freedom outside the church as well though. Benevolence here. Benevolence here. Namely, Giving to the poor among us, meaning specifically members of the church. The early church in Acts chapter 4 sets the example here. People were giving to the church and the church was then distributing to those who were in need. We're told in scripture that the poor will always be among us. There will always be poor people. That doesn't mean that if you're poor, you'll always be poor, but there will always be poor people in the earth. And God has a special eye toward the poor. And the church then, in giving to benevolence here, is to reflect God's concern for the poor. But there's also benevolence there. Benevolence here and benevolence there. Category number four. To a lesser degree, we then even give to the poor outside of us. Acts chapter 11 helps us here. The church is collecting money to give to those not part of their own church, but to the poor outside the church. And certainly there's flexibility here to see that we can give to the poor who are believers. And we can give to the poor that are unbelievers. The Christian gospel declares boldly that we value human life as image bearers of God. And so we should have a heart for the poor. Indeed, even the Christian helping the Christian poor is evidence of gospel unity across great distances. So we help the Christian poor there as a direct declaration of our unity with them, though there may be distances between us. The Gentile Macedonian church here in Second Corinthians 8 is giving to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. What a testimony of unity in Christ though ethnically diverse. Four categories. Gospel here, workers here, gospel workers there, benevolence here, benevolence there. These things help us to see where and how giving advances the gospel. And there are certainly other ways. For instance, we haven't even looked at hospitality this morning. That's another way of giving. But these four, I believe, are the biblical primary ways. 
Point number one, we've seen the heart understanding of a biblical giver. Number two, we've seen the manner in which biblical givers give. Point three, the power and motivation. Why do we give? Namely, because of God's grace and the gospel. God's grace is the power. The gospel is the motivation. Still with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You see here this Macedonian church. Paul is commending them, verse 2, to the Corinthian church. For in a severe test of their affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This small, impoverished church had already given. So what drives a church to want them to plead with Paul, let us be a part. Let us give again. We want to give a third time even. How can we give even more sacrificially? How can we give even more out of our extreme poverty? We can't, quote unquote, afford it. And yet we want to give. What an example for us. What love is being given here? What is driving this church? And namely, you see it in verse 1, it is God's grace that powers all our giving. It is all of grace. We could not give if it was not for His grace. You see that in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. For we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is, is not calling the Corinthian church to some behavior modification. As if you could just shift and begin giving. But he's actually interested in engaging their heart in understanding God's grace and the gospel. And so notice the motivation of our giving, if empowered by grace, is the gospel. Look at verse 24 of chapter 8. So give proof. Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting of you to these men. Look at verse 13 of chapter 9. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Paul here is arguing that the giving of the Corinthian church is a test of whether they truly understand the gospel. It's a test of their spiritual health. And our giving in like manner is a similar test this morning. Do we believe Ephesians 1, 3, or 1 Peter that we read this morning? That we are blessed by God and with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do we believe that this morning? You probably have heard the term, pay it forward. This describes a, a person that has received something. And instead of repaying the person that gave to them, they pay it for. They give to someone else. Maybe you've walked into a coffee shop and when you got to the counter, the cashier said, your coffee's already been paid for. Pay it forward. Meaning, take the money you would have used to buy your coffee and it advanced to help someone else. 
pay it forward. Grace-powered, gospel-motivated giving is simply paying it forward. That's all it is. The God who owns it all, the God who calls you child and you call father, the God who's given you all that you need for life and godliness, the God who's purchased your life from the grave and given you home in heaven, simply asks that we pay forward that grace, that we extend his grace through giving. And so when we give to someone like an Evan took, who is going to advance the gospel ministry to every tribe, tongue, and language. We are extending God's grace to that person. We're allowing them the time and the ability to focus their efforts on proclaiming the gospel. And we get the immense privilege of partnering with the Holy Spirit and that believer enjoy and delight in the gospel, though we ourselves may not ever be able to actually physically go. We're paying that gospel forward. We're taking God's grace to us and extending it forward. And you'll notice that in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, grace-powered, gospel-motivated giving produces an attitude change. Look at it. We no longer give reluctantly or uncompulsion. We're no longer under a headlock saying you've got to give. But we're giving cheerfully. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We should strive to excel in cheerful, grace-powered, gospel-motivated giving. It's not compulsory. It's simply the response of a heart made alive by God's free gift of grace. Because of Christ, we should strive And we are free to give outrageously, to give hilariously. But is the Bible saying that we should not give if we do not have a cheerful attitude? Is the Bible saying we cannot give if we do not have a cheerful attitude? And the Bible's answer is no. We should give anyway. Why? Because of the result of the giving. And that's point number four. Point number four, the result of giving this way. It's twofold. The result is blessing for us and glory for God. Blessing for us and glory to God. We may at times be giving uncheerfully and yet striving to do so by faith. And the result is blessing for us and glory to God. God blesses those who are generous. Christ himself in Acts 20 says, you are more blessed when you give, then when you receive. What a grace. What love is this? That God not only gives us everything in Christ, but he then gives us even more blessing over the top of that. It's unfathomable. God blesses grace-powered, joy-filled, generous giving. This, morning, this, this week as I was studying this passage, I, find my, I found my mind was wanting to push that truth out from Scripture. I didn't want to take that in. Maybe your mind goes there as well. Why would, we, why would I have been pushing that thought out when Scripture is so clear about it? One idea is that this idea of God blessing our giving calls to mind a false prosperity gospel, which I'll speak on in a moment. Maybe this thought of God blessing our giving causes 
us to repulse because we realize that if God blesses our giving, that will cause us to have to give. That will cause us to have to pry our fingers off our pocketbooks. Loved ones, if it's the second reason, then look to Christ who gave for you and let him provide that grace to just gently, lovingly, firmly peel those fingers off, quote-unquote, your money and to smash the idol of the piggy bank. The first reason of false gospel proclaiming, but false, prosperity gospel preachers or talkers probably would be a better term, is a valid reason to reject this in some respects. And because they've certainly taken texts like this and they've used and abused them. You will be blessed and get if you give to me, they say. The absurdity of the abuse of scripture passages by prosperity preachers is off the charts. I read uh, yesterday of one guy who uh, wanted a new jet. Not a, not a good jet, uh, not a decent jet, the best jet, private jet they make on the market, to, to, to the tune of $65 million. $65 million. All in the name of God so that he could fly around the world and minister to people. And it gets more absurd. His prosperity gospel friends then defended his need for such a jet by declaring that Flying in a normal airliner with other people hinders the work of ministry. And this is what they said, quote, Flying airlines was, quote, agitating, close quote, with, quote, people coming up to you and asking for prayer. You can't fly in those normal airliners. We might meet people. You can't make this stuff up. It's absurd. And yet let's not run from the Bible when people abuse it. Let's run toward the Bible as our source of truth. And it is clear. The Bible says it is clear. God is not some ATM machine. False preachers, false gospel, false prosperity preachers twist the doctrine of giving in the Bible to serve their own advantage in the pocketbook. The Bible says God will bless those who give to his work and the advancement of his bride, the church. You will be blessed. The Bible does not say that you may get now. It doesn't say how you will be blessed. It simply says you will be blessed. And we know that when we are giving to God's work in the advancement of his bride, we are making deposits into eternal rewards that the Bible does tell us will be there. This is another paradigm shift of the Christian faith. We don't give to get wealthy. We give to spread the glory of God by increasing the heavenly kingdom's occupants of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ tells us, John 4, that he wants true worshipers. And the gospel is what makes true worshipers. So we give to increase those worshipers. And the blessing of God upon our giving is promised. But he does not indicate how. He does not indicate when that blessing will come. And yet, do we have the faith this morning that to believe that the God who owns everything wants to bless you if you give according to the way he's described here? Cheerful, generous giving, motivated by the gospel, empowered by grace. Do you have the faith to believe he's going to bless that? We are seeking eternal wealth for his glory. We are storing up riches in heaven where moth nor rust does corrupt. 
And we do so and are enabled because, as we read this morning in 2 Corinthians, Christ became a pauper. He became a son of man. He humbled himself from heavenly glory to a stable for us that we might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Only divine love could bring about motivation for God to do that. And the riches of Christ eternally are far in abundance greater than whatever material riches might be here. We have the blessing when we give, but we also do so ultimately to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 20. For the glory of God himself, it says. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 13. By their approval of this service, this offering of the Corinthian church, they will glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is why we give. This is why Christians do everything. It's for the glory of God. That God alone might gain glory. For He alone is worthy of all praise and honor. He alone is marvelous. Giving is not primarily a financial issue. It's a heart issue about glory. Giving is a fruit of the gospel's transforming power that turns our desire from my glory into desire for His glory. So how's your giving? How could I, as your pastor, help you walk biblically through whatever changes may need to take place? What does cheerful, generous, gospel-motivated, grace-empowered giving look like or continue to look like like for you this morning? Does, does change need to happen to free you to give cheerfully and generously? Is there sin needing to be repented of that is hindering your giving? Is, it a, is there a lack of discipline? Is it selfishness? Wrong priorities? For some, Proverbs 15.22 tells us that there is wisdom in counselors. For some, it might be helpful to sit down and seek wise counsel on your finances. For some, it might be meditating on the gospel more, reflecting on His amazing grace to stir your heart to give, redirecting your giving to the church first, or and then others second. What about if you have a low income? What about if you have no income? Well, give what you do have: money, time, possessions, relationships. It is a privilege to give. And the people who know that it's a privilege to give are the poor among us way more than the rich. It is a privilege to give. In fact, I've seen the poor delight in giving way more than I oftentimes see the rich delight in giving. It's a privilege to give, and they recognize that. Maybe you have a new view of giving this morning. And I trust that the Word has encouraged you and the Holy Spirit will guide accordingly that He will help you as you seek to submit to His desire for you to be a cheerful, generous, gospel-motivated, grace-empowered giver for His glory and His blessing upon you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice to see that You have given to us freely the riches of Christ. Father, we're undeserving of a of a smidgen of grace this morning. And yet you have not only given us a smidgen, you've given us eternal blessings. You've given us a new heart. You've given us 
new life you've given us, eternal life. What a joy to be a Christian this morning. What a joy to know that you as the God who never changes and owns all things has given us abundantly all that we need for life and godliness. Father, stir our hearts this morning if need be to give. Father, strengthen our hearts and confirm in our hearts the joy that we do gain for those who are giving. Father, I don't know the giving records of those that are here. But I know my own heart a little bit. And I know that I want to be more motivated to give because I want to see your life-transforming gospel advanced. I want to be more a part of that. Father, there will not be a U-Haul hooked to my hearse when you call me home. So, Father, we want to pay it forward. We want to advance your grace and gospel forward that we might, when we see you and hear the words, by your grace, well done, thou good and faithful servant, be able to just cast crown after crown after crown of good works at your feet, rejoicing in your grace and delighting to know that we could have just a small bit of an opportunity to cast the glory that is due to your name toward you. We want to do that for eternity. We want to do that even now. We thank you for this church. I thank you for these believers. I thank you for their generous giving to this church and the way they have supported this ministry, the way they have supported me and my family. Encourage them now. Strengthen us. Empower us by your spirit for your work this week. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're grateful that God is faithful. We'll now stand and sing his faithfulness toward us.